Hello, and welcome to Coaster Kings Radio. I'm Ian O'Donnell, and today we continue our ongoing mini-sode series, The Regional Park Story. King's Dominion wasn't the only expansion plan Taft Broadcasting had in the works surrounding the successful opening of King's Island in 1972. Likely emboldened by the success of their programming in Canada, Taft started scoping out sites for a park in the Toronto area. Toronto had been without a regional park since 1955, when their Sunnyside Amusement Park was closed to accommodate the construction of an expressway. A site in the village of Maple, itself a part of the town of Vaughan, Ontario, was selected and a long development process began. There was significant local resistance to the project. Many were concerned that an amusement park might lower property values, create traffic problems, and lead to increased noise pollution. Others were concerned over the intrusion of American corporations and culture into Canada. Local leisure businesses also felt that the region couldn't handle any additional competition. Taft took these concerns seriously, and many of the differences between what would become Canada's Wonderland and the King's Parks can be linked to these concerns. International Street remains the central entrance area, with the four-leaf clover of themed areas branching from it. But instead of being anchored by a replica of the Eiffel Tower, Canada's Wonderland is centered on Wonder Mountain, a 150-foot-tall artificial mountain designed to be a celebration of Canada's natural beauty. To calm concerns about a carnival-like atmosphere, the Coney Island-themed areas that were seen at King's Island and King's Dominion, where it was renamed Candy Apple Grove, are absent in Canada's Wonderland. The park instead featured two new themed areas— To the left of International Street was the Grand World Exposition of 1890, a fictional World's Fair at the turn of the century, complete with rides, restaurants, and shops themed to different nations. And to the right of International Street is Medieval Fair, themed to the Middle Ages with castles, dragons, and more. The four-leaf clover was completed with the Happy Land of Hanna-Barbera on the top right of the park, and the proposed but not built Frontier Canada on the top left of the park. To fill the gap that the area of Frontier Canada left, the area surrounding Winter Mountain was renamed International Festival. To help with noise concerns, Taft borrowed from Disney and encircled the park with an earthen berm. As a final distinction, the name Canada's Wonderland was selected, emphasizing it as a separate entity from its American sister parks. With the general sentiment turned in favor of the park, construction began in 1979, and on May 23, 1981, Canada's Wonderland opened to the general public. Beyond the design adjustments, Taft also packed the park with popular attractions. You could say this is the most complete regional theme park that we've seen so far. By 1981, it was clear that your park needed both wooden and steel coasters to attract guests, and Canada's Wonderland opened with five. Wonderland discarded the racer concept and instead opened with two large-scale woodies, both featuring layouts of coasters that operated at Cincinnati's Coney Island, Wild Beast, modeled after the Coney Island Wildcat, and the mighty Canadian Mindbuster, modeled after the Shooting Star. Hanna-Barbera Land included the junior wooden coaster, Ghoster Coaster, with a notably elaborate haunted house queue. Unlike its sister parks, Winterland did not open with a Galaxy Coaster, and instead the park opted for a Mack Rides Blauer Enzian powered coaster as their family steel coaster. Taft turned to Arrow to design and construct Dragonfire, a foreign version custom looper which holds the distinction of being one of the first modern looping coasters in Canada, as well as one of the only Arrows to feature a counterclockwise corkscrew. 
The remaining of the park's lineup was rounded out by a robust collection of flat rides and kiddie rides, the double-tracked Wonder Tour antique car ride, and the high-capacity Zumba Flume log flume ride. The emphasis on high-capacity roller coasters is evidence of the focus coasters had begun to take on in regional parks, so much so that they had become inexplicably tied. Canada's Wonderland proved to be a major success for King's Entertainment Company, the Theme Start Park subsidiary Taft had created during the park's development. Despite the naysayers, Canadians flocked to what would prove to be their first modern theme park, and it remains the most popular seasonal theme park in North America, with 3.95 million visitors in 2019. King's Entertainment would continue to invest in the park, with notable additions including 1984's Whitewater Canyon Rapid Ride, 1985 Skyrider Togo stand-up coaster, the enclosure of Blower Enzian into Wonder Mountain to become Thunder Run in 1986, the Vacoma Boomerang Bat in 1987, Timberwolf Falls Shoot the Shoots in 1990, Vortex Aero Suspended Coaster in 1991, and the Splash Works Water Park in 1992. While exciting, these attractions did little to contribute to the park's original themed areas, and Kiko never built the long-promised Frontier Canada-themed area. In 1992, the Kiko Entertainment-owned parks were acquired by Paramount Communications, and the park would reopen in 1993 as Paramount Canada's Wonderland. Paramount's additions would again do little to contribute to the park's themed areas, including 1995's Top Gun, Vacoma SLC, which opened in the Grand World Exposition area, 1997's Drop Zone, which opened in Medieval Fair, and 2004's Tomb Raider The Ride, a Zamperla flying coaster that replaced the Zumba Flume in Grand World Exposition. These additions actually resulted in the rechristening of Grand World Exposition to Action Zone. It wouldn't be until the park's third owner, Cedar Fair, that we would start seeing additions themed to the park's themed areas, notably 2012's Leviathan Giga Coaster and the reversion of part of the Grand World Exposition to that theme in 2018. Cedar Fair's efforts have really culminated with the opening of Yukon Striker in 2019, which also marked the introduction of Frontier Canada to the, to the park, albeit in a much smaller form than originally planned. Canada's Wonderland would mark the end of the regional theme park trend in North America. While new parks would continue to open, some of which we will discuss in next week's episode, the trend had slowed. Canada's Wonderland also serves as the perfect example of the end of the focus on theming in regional parks that emerged in the 1980s. As Disney and eventually Universal became increasingly sophisticated and travel became increasingly affordable, regional parks found that high-profile thrills proved better moneymakers than the elaborate themed environments. Of course, this is now changing, as many parks from the regional era are passing 50 years of operation. We are seeing parks celebrate their history and theming in ways we haven't seen since they've opened. Only time will tell what is next for the regional theme park, but they are forever woven into the history of the 20th century of North America. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this mini-episode, please leave a comment or rating wherever you are listening. You can find interesting articles, exclusive updates, and a range of theme park-related merchandise at thecoasterkings.com. For Coaster Kings, this is Ian. Join me next week as we continue exploring the regional park story. A day at Canada's Wonderland is a day like no other. 30 hair-raising rides. 
five live shows, over 20 performances daily, 25 restaurants, 18 international boutiques, 12 cartoon characters, 20 special attractions, 12 hours a day, every day, from only $10.95. Come for the day of your life today at Canada's Wonderland. 